0: women were there. For centuries, discussions of early Christianity have focused on male leaders in the church, but there is ample evidence right in the New Testament that women were actively involved in ministry. Hello and welcome to the God Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle, and our very special guest on the podcast this time is Nijay Gupta, who's with us to talk about his new IVP InterVarsity Press America book called Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and ministered in the early church. Nijay is professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Illinois in the States. Previously, he was a professor of New Testament at Portland Seminary, where he also oversaw the master's thesis program. And NJ joins me now from the States. Nijay, hi, and welcome. Thank you, Branka to be with you. Yes, and apologies from my co-host, Rido Ian Reid, who's otherwise um, occupied this morning running his church and his five children. So, um, I don't know which one he's That's writing a lot. at the moment. But That's a lot. He's probably got enough to be going on with. Now, Nija, this is a fascinating read, and you bring together heaps and heaps of information that probably most of us haven't ever encountered before. Why did you want to write this book?
1: You know, in many ways, it reflects um, a change in my perspective on the Bible. I, you know, in my teen years when I started going to church, um, I kind of entered a community where. It was just taken for granted that the Bible and the church focus on men. I I didn't find it demeaning or I didn't find it, you know, kind of uh, off-putting in terms of, you know, how women were treated. Uh, My church was a very wonderful church. But in terms of kind of the story that was told about God, perfect name for our uh, podcast, uh, the story that's told about God is a story from men, about men, for men. That was kind of the... The general nature of it. And then I went to seminary. I learned Greek and Hebrew. I studied biblical context. And some things started to feel like they were kind of messages that weren't accurately from the Bible, like women can't be pastors. And then I searched in vain for where it says that in the Bible, or women can't be elders. And again, I searched in vain for where that's in the Bible. Um, And then this idea that women are kind of, only women are geared For leadership and then you have women like deborah and you have mary the mother of jesus who's raising this child from there not only from beginning to end but also the beginning of the church and then that made me really rethink how we tell the story of the bible and so i start the book off with the analogy of hidden figures which is a famous book and movie i saw the movie confession didn't read the book but you know, I love the analogy of hidden figures because it's about these American uh, scientists who are African American women who are behind a lot of the space achievements. Uh, and we think of the men walking on the moon, but that couldn't have happened or wouldn't have happened in that time without these, you know, brilliant women. But why did the history tellers not talk about those women? So my book is basically saying, why are the history tellers not talking about these women in scripture?
0: Yes, we're definitely dealing with male bias um, in, the, in, our, in my tradition, in the Western tradition, uh, definitely, and male patriarchy and misinterpretations of Scripture for many, many mm-hmm. decades, and as women are hugely important in God's story. Mm-hmm. And, and the Apostle Paul, uh, he mentions an, a, a very large number of important women in his letters, doesn't he? I mean, thinking of yes. uh, particularly of Romans 15. About how many women does Paul mention
1: um, he, I think he mentions like uh, uh, 10, I think, 10, 9, 10 or 11 women. Um, I think one of the challenges, Brent, is we don't rec- instantly connect ancient names to gender. So you won't know immediately that Tryphena and Triphosa are women or Persis. Yeah. Um, and then some of the women aren't named by their name, like sister of so-and-so, mother of so-and-so. But what fascinates me is Paul's never been to Rome to, to visit churches. He's writing a letter to the Roman church, greeting women by name, and he knows stuff about them as leaders. They worked; Mary worked very hard, so forth, things about their ministry. How does he know them? Uh, maybe some by reputation, but he actually says at least to one of them, she's been a mother to me as well, uh, meaning he's met some of these people. So if he has met them and he hasn't been to Rome, that means they're traveling. Hmm. And that makes sense because people like Priscilla and Aquila – are traveling missionaries. They're going from city to city like Rome, Ephesus, Corinth. And so women aren't sitting around at home taking care of the kids. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. There was a time period where my wife did that. There was a time period that I've done that. But what I am saying is women weren't resigned only to the domestic space. The early Christians expected and commended and sent women out to do public ministry.
0: Yes, and clearly there are women who are business people, businesswomen as well, like Lydia, for example. Lydia, yeah. Uh, in the book of Acts, clearly she, she is. Can we just, um, because your book starts with Deborah, who's a pretty important mm-hmm. figure in uh, the history of Israel. Who yep. was Deborah, and
1: why is she so important in the list of judges, do you think? Yeah, she is incredibly important in the Old Testament as a whole because the Old Testament makes a big deal out of Israel having stable and holy and righteous leadership. And um, eventually you have the monarchy. Sadly, later you have a divided monarchy. Then you have, you know, kind of chaos. And then Jesus comes as the great King, you know, as the greater King in the image of David, kind of in that similar model before the Kings, you have the patriarchs, you have Moses, you have Joshua, but then you have this intermediate period after Joshua and before the Kings. And there's kind of a leadership vacuum and Israel's in the land, but they failed to drive out the Canaanites. So they're just have to deal with this constant pestering and war and falling into sin, falling into idolatry. So the book of Judges is actually one of the darkest narratives in the old Testament. And it's, You learn a few things that are repeated throughout the book. One is there was not yet a king in Israel, meaning Israel is really struggling without leadership. Two, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And three, no one did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So instead of having a stable, traditional king or Moses or Joshua, uh, what you'd have is this cycle where Israel would sin and then cry out to the Lord and then Uh, Israel would sin and God would punish them by allowing their enemies, the Canaanites, to overwhelm them. Then they cry out to the Lord and then God would raise up a judge. Now, the term judge is kind of a misnomer because in many cases, the judge didn't actually do any judging. They were basically heroes, like war heroes, that would step in to, to fight off the enemy and bring about peace. So Samson... Gideon they're not brought in as robe and gavel judges they're brought in as temporary military leaders to push back the enemy and that's what most of these judges do Deborah's really interesting for a couple reasons one is instead of this cycle where she's raised up she's already leading the people as a prophet and a judge when she is called on just to, to go into military work with Barak that's interesting because as a prophet, it doesn't mean like she's predicting their future. It means that she is a mouthpiece for divine revelation. That's what a that's what a prophet is. And then she's actually judging the law cases and disputes of the people. Why is that important? Because the precursor to her is Moses. Moses sat in the seat of judgment wing. And 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 it gives her some spiritual authority because the law of the land was also Torah, which is a religious law. So she's the Supreme Court leader. She's the executive leader. She's a spiritual leader. She's everything wrapped in one. Not only is she doing all that, she's doing that in Israel's darkest days. So when you have all of that together, she is an incredible leader. And in the book of Judges, she has a whole song that's sung in her honor. And that tells us that the Old Testament treats her as a righteous, noble leader.
0: Yes, it's coming come into New Testament times, because one of the, the most interesting parts of your book, I think, for me, was all the material you put together about women in Roman society, and it gives mm-hmm. a very complex and very different picture to the one that we perhaps traditionally have thought of. How were women viewed in Roman society?
1: It, it, it's hard to collect all that information into one because there is, there's co- contradictory attitudes. And it's kind of like America in the 21st century. Oh, we have the civil rights movement. We have feminist scholarship. So are all of our problems for women, have they gone away? Absolutely not. Um, We haven't had a female president. You know, we have all kinds of issues in the church. We have all kinds of issue in politics. We still have, you know, lots of sexual abuse issues. So if someone 100 years from now is writing about America or maybe New Zealand or Australia or India, they're going to have a hard time summing up what life was like now. But if we're going back to Rome, I like to talk about three or four different layers of society, of how power was conceived. One is patriarchy. And so one dynamic is there was you know this message that was sent through propaganda through commercials, through statues, through all kinds of stuff that the house is for women, the domus, and public is for men, the forum, the forum and the domus, right? And the ideal of the woman was she was a good mother, husband, she works in wool, like she sews clothes, she takes care of the house, she kind of uh tells the gardener what to do, you know, all of that, she manages the slaves. That's not the end of the story though, because yeah, uh, in the Roman world, you also had social class. So I call this a, 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 another index of power. And so you, you know, if we're talking top to bottom, you have the gods, <laughs> and some of them are women. Uh, you have the emperor, and the emperor is a man, but the emperor's wife holds a lot of social power. Uh, below that, you have the senatorial class, the equestrian class, you have commoners, then you have slaves, criminals, and foreigners. And if a woman is high class, she actually has more social power than a lot of men in the common sphere. And so let me just give you one example. There, in Roman society, there were these women called the Vestal Virgins. So they're virgins, meaning they're not attached to a man, which was unusual. And they were part of a Roman religious cult that operated as kind of a protector of Rome. So the work they did in religion was seen as almost on the level of, of a politician, like a senator. Imagine if they were like this, the assistants to Roma, the great deity of Rome. I mean, they're treated almost as royalty. They get the best – they get they get courtside tickets to basketball games. They get front row seats uh, you know, to Hamilton, the musical. I mean, they wielded a massive amount of social power, and they weren't connected to men. And you might say, oh, that's an anomaly. But when you understand this index of power – that they're put in a class of their own. It adds, it adds another layer to it. Third thing I would add is Rome wanted to be prestigious, which tends to keep an organization small, but they also wanted to be massive (laughs) and uh, they wanted to expand. And so one of the indexes is success or productivity. So if someone is really, really good at their job, whether they're a male or female, they'll take Mm -hmm. you. So let me give an example. My heritage is Indian. My parents came to the United States uh, as immigrants in the 1970s. And my dad uh, ha- is a physician. You know, He had to put up with a lot of discrimination. But he rose to success because he was really, really good at his job. And so on the one hand, his Indianness holds him back in American society. On the other hand, his productivity propels him forward. And if a woman was really good at uh, in business or in kind of behind the scenes politicking, or perhaps athletics, uh, whatever it is, she could create a lot of social capital that she could use, and people would then start to give her respect because they wanted something from her.
0: And there were some formidable ladies in the Roman world. I mean, thinking of the Empress Livia, for example. Absolutely. For those of us who've watched Claudius* will know how much power she wielded behind the throne.
1: (laughs) For sure. And she eventually had a whole uh, religious cult in her honor um, with priests and priestesses and all of this. Um, And, you know, it's I I don't want to compare modern times to ancient times, but it's not unlike First Lady. The First Lady, you know, in in the White House is going to have she's not officially a politician, but she's going to have a lot of power. Mm. And a first gentleman, uh, if we ever ever have that, would be similar uh, so Empress Livia, there were also business women like Eumachia of Pompeii who uh, we you know Pompeii was preserved because of this eruption of Mount Vesuvius and we have this statue of a Umachia, and she has all these accolades and she gave all this money to these businesses and they want to support and respect her. So women could find uh, I like to talk about you know this dome of patriarchy and women could find cracks within that system to move through and exercise leadership and influence. And Rome would say, okay, if you got the chops, then you got a shot.
0: Mm. It just suddenly occurred to me, um, my next question is really, how much do we know about the role of women in the early church? But just as I'm sitting listening to you speaking, I'm thinking, I wonder whether the early church actually gave women opportunities in leadership and responsibility that they couldn't have had in other places in the Roman world. We think of the church now as very conservative and see it as almost backwards in its thinking about women. But I wonder if in the first century it wasn't exactly the opposite. It turned the whole fabric of society upside down.
1: I think so, and three things are quick um, uh, answers to that. One is religion was a space in the Roman world where women could exercise more power than in other areas of life. So women priestesses, it was extremely common in the Greek-Roman world. To have women priestesses so how many women priestesses converted to christianity expected to be a religious leader um i would imagine some some enough to take notice second thing i would say is and i talk about this in my book uh there's actually a non-christian roman named pliny who is operating on behalf of the emperor and is investigating christianity and he interviews two people kind of interrogates them and what we learn from that letter is three fascinating things they're both women. They're both diakonoi, which we can translate as deacons or ministers. And three, they're both slaves. Oh, okay. Uh, and that's fascinating mm. because you wouldn't normally put those things together. Mm. No. Um, the, they're leaders, they're women, and they're slaves. And this was actually a mockery used of Christianity by second and third century opponents of Christianity, that they're, they're a religion of idiots, women, slaves, the gullible, and children. Deep. Um and uh and criminals because Jesus was a criminal. Um and and to some degree Christians took that as a badge of honor. Some people think that the word Christian actually originated as a mockery of, you know, Christians, you know, Christianoi, the Christ people and then they just adopted it. Um the third thing I would say is we have evidence uh throughout the New Testament that The apostles were especially leaning on widows, single women, um, perhaps wealthy single women like Phoebe, maybe Lydia, Nympha, uh, many of the women in Romans 16, because they were apt at leadership, capable, they're running their own households. Uh, I talk about in my book, Paul seemed to have a blind attitude towards leadership saying, hey, you're really good at this. Can you do this? rather than, hey, you're a man or a woman. um, He doesn't seem to line it up according to that way in terms of who he commends, like Euodia and Syntyche from Philippians 4.
0: Mm. Who are some of the women we meet in the pages of the New Testament? I mean, you mentioned some of them, um, and you've mentioned that a a large number of them, as far as we know, were deaconoid deacons. But who are some of the other women we meet, and what sort of background and what sort of influence would they have held in the early church?
1: Right, you know, only in the last five to ten years have I gotten up to speed on gospel scholarship that points to the women of Luke chapter eight. Um, so in Luke chapter eight, uh, Luke is very tuned in to the presence of women everywhere, and even amongst Jesus' disciples. Uh, Brad, I don't know what you were, what you thought of growing up, but when I imagine Jesus and his disciples, I imagine when he went to a restaurant, he got a reservation for thirteen people. 12 male disciples and himself. But when we read the gospel of Luke, Luke talks about 70 or more, right? And amongst those 70 are a few named women, uh, Susanna, Joanna, Mary Magdalene and others and many others. And then you go to the tomb and these women are, are there while the men are hiding. Strike the, sh- the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. The men have scattered and the women go there. So who are some of these women and what are their backgrounds? Let's take Mary Magdalene. It says that she was demon possessed and there were these demons that were cast out of her and other women had that experience. And there's no men that are mentioned as traveling with them. Sometimes their husband is mentioned. Presumably they've split with them or their husband is dead. These women seem to be operating independently. I don't know if you're a fan of the show, The Chosen. I actually like the show. I've never seen it, actually. I've, you've I've never seen it? it. Oh, it's, it's pretty it. good. Yeah. It's pretty good. And they at the table, they'll have Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, amongst the 12. And to me, that smacks of realism when we read the Gospel of Luke. Uh, here's something I point out in my book, and you could tell me if you remember this. When the women are at the tomb and the angels appear to them, according to Luke... The angels say to the women, shame on you. Don't you remember that Jesus taught you this would happen? Uh, Uh, He doesn't say shame on them, but uh, he tells you that this would happen as if they were taught directly by Jesus. Because there are portions of earlier in Luke where Jesus gives this teaching that the Son of Man will die and rise. The women are being held responsible for the teaching of Jesus. So some people have said, oh, women were followers. They weren't disciples. Disciple literally means learner or student. And uh, actually uh, some of the church fathers think, uh, at least one of them does, that uh, women were among the 70 disciples that were sent out by Jesus in Luke 10. That makes sense to me because if he sent them out two by two, I always assumed they were two men, but it makes sense that he would send them out as a man, woman, couple so they could minister to couples. Um, and it would be natural, especially in a Jewish environment, for women to minister to women, men to men. I, I don't think that was uh, a hard and fast rule, uh, but you know that, that would be, you know, I think, common in that time. And some have even said the two, two disciples on the road to Emmaus may have been a man and a woman. So we have to enlarge our imagination to say, not that this is absolutely necessary, but it is possible. Because Luke is very interested in male-female pairs— like anna the prophet and simeon uh like the parables with a man and woman you know like elizabeth and zachariah this is the right up the alley of what luke likes to do and it would make all the sense in the world
0: in the time we have left we're fast running out of time i feel we've hardly got started it's so much so much (laughs) material the the picture you paint in the book is, is as you say infinitely more complex Mm -hmm. and very, very different to the one that that I grew up with, Um, and it sounds as though you grew up with much the same model. Um, I want to ask you about Phoebe, because I was fascinated to learn that Paul had a letter carrier, Mm -hmm. and she was Phoebe. Now, if you were uh, a letter carrier for the Apostle Paul, what did that involve?
1: Yeah, this is really important because we have to get outside of modern modern assumptions about delivery people. So for example, my office is right next to our front door. So I'll see an Amazon delivery person walk by and drop off a package and leave. And usually I try to run to the door and yell thank you while they're walking back to their car, if I'm available. Um, So we don't really have contact with those delivery people, but you have to imagine the ancient world where uh, they didn't have an official postal service, especially for private correspondence. And so if you're gonna send a letter 50, 60, 100 miles, 200, 500 miles away, you have to find a trusted colleague. So you're either gonna hire somebody, which is precarious because maybe you don't know them, or more likely you're going to use a relative or you're gonna send one of your own slaves or employees or someone that you trust. And often someone like Paul's gonna send someone he trusts like Tychicus or Epaphroditus or Onesimus, You know, he's gonna send somebody that is going to be kind of a proxy for him and we've learned from couriers and letter carriers from the ancient world some of that research that's been done that they would often act as agents of the sender so let's say you're sending a business letter from your business to another one whoever's going with that they're gonna to have to do some negotiation right if you're gonna say you owe me a thousand dollars you know they're gonna to have to be able to explain all of that get the money and if they say no i'm gonna give you five hundred they're going to have to explain and negotiate all that. So when Paul sends Phoebe with this letter, which not only do we think is possible, but we actually have some ancient manuscripts that write in additional information like Paul's letter to the Romans through Phoebe. These are called uh, marginal notes or sometimes subscripts. Uh, so we actually this has been known and discussed for a long time, going back you know very close to the time of Paul. Paul needs to make sure he sends someone he trusts. And I even refer to this person as a proxy because he says about Phoebe, she's going to be there. Give her anything she wants. He commends her with the highest level of commendation he can give. He says sis, she's a sister. That doesn't mean she's a fellow Christian. They already know that because he says she's a diaconas. I think it means she's a colleague of mine, someone like me, just like he often refers to Timothy as my brother, Timothy. So these letter carriers were more than letter carriers. They were um extensions of Paul, agents of Paul. So let me give an example from the gospels, the parable of the wicked tenants. This, this Lord of a, of a property has, you know, puts tenants in charge of his farm. He leaves and he wants to collect the harvest. So he sends a slave and they kill the slave and he sends another slave they kill the slave. Then he says, I will send my son. They'll respect him. And then they kill him. Then he goes and he punishes them because these agents are an extension of who he is. Uh probably in that time, this person's not that worried about slaves, but they're a aff- they're it's an affront to the sender to harm the the agent so that's the picture we're looking at. These are very important figures and I would have thought it would have
0: been a dangerous job traveling all that way um yeah. If she was traveling on her own, perhaps with someone else, it still would have been dangerous traveling. I remember reading that you could get a letter from in the in the Roman Empire from one end of the Roman Empire to the other in some staggeringly fast amount of time. I mean, okay, they didn't have airplanes, but it was within a matter of months, or maybe as far as I can remember. Yeah,
1: it's not, it, you know we get the sense that Paul's writing First and Second Thessalonians, for example, in, in a matter of weeks. Um, we don't always know exactly where he is, but. Uh, he's you know the correspondence can be pretty fast there was something called the Via Ignatia which is this well paved road across the Roman Empire if it's on the Via Ignatia you're in good luck what you didn't want to do is go on the open seas people die. Your, your chances of surviving the open seas are very low um, but yeah uh, you know, I think it was dangerous so for example the Philippians send Epaphroditus to Paul and Paul sends him back prematurely and says he almost died Mm, well, and go. we don't know if it was robbers, we don't know if it was disease, but you, you know, Phoebe is is uh, taking a risk.
0: Mm, fascinating character, and you will meet many more fascinating uh, women in the pages of Nijay Gupta's new book. Nijay, it's that's our half hour. I'm afraid. Um, I wish was <laughs> by fast. I know. I wish we could have another half hour. It was it was fab- fascinating. Thank you so much, yeah. Nijay Gupta. The book from IVP Intervarsity Press America is called "Tell Her Story." how women led, taught and ministered in the early church. And uh, Nijay, thank you so much. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Nijay, thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Brett. Nice to meet you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you wanna help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.